If you're going to start a business, it's hard to beat something that fuels and funds your passions. Mike Cache started Jensen USA in the most haphazard of ways, as a teenager and against his father's wishes. Now it's one of the largest online bike shops in the world. His early startup methods are a little different than how we do it today, but his ingenuity is inspiring and pretty entertaining. This is a little bit longer episode, but I think you'll enjoy it. If you want to jump past the startup story and straight to some modern day advice, skip to about 32 minutes in. You'll lose a little context, but that's where we start talking numbers, marketing, and management. We discuss how he runs a massive business with tons of inventory and a huge payroll, plus how they market through social media, Google, and affiliate programs. Consider this your crash course in running an online store with equal parts good advice and plenty of things you should definitely not do. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. So Mike, you started Jensen USA, which is one of the larger mail order bike companies in the US, I guess world nowadays, everything's international with the web. Um, so I'm hoping you can kind of tell us how you started, because I got a tour of your place a few years back, I'm not sure if you remember, but the the startup story was, I thought, both super interesting and hilarious. And uh, there's some parts of it that I think are definitely lessons in what not to do, but uh, I want to hear you tell it for our listeners. Uh, but first, before we kind of like get the whole startup story, I'm just curious, like, where did the idea come from? Well, thanks, Tyler, for having me uh, on the program. And yeah, yeah it's an interesting story. Um, I guess, you know, to start, you kind of have to go back to my childhood and you know, my passion for cycling and, you know, that's really what drove uh, me to start this business. But, you know, also combining with my entrepreneurial spirit uh, and wanting to do something in business. Um, but really, I mean, the short, really short version is I started the company to to fund my habit, you know, my cycling habit. And um, that's really what drove me to start the business. I got into cycling and I don't know I mean just I think uh, when I was two <laughs> I've been into cycling for as long as I can remember um, and uh, but really got into the sport probably around 10 was uh, racing mountain bikes were just kind of coming out uh, had been out of you know maybe I don't know five six something years something like that um, and there was, uh, I lived about a mile away from the entrance to Chino Hills State Park. And uh, I'd always see these cyclists, you know, all decked out in, in uh, their gear and they'd be riding by the, the street. And I'm like, where the hell are they going? I want to know where they're going. Uh, so 
I don't know, I must have been 12 or something like that. I convinced my parents to let me go off the street and follow these cyclists. So one morning, I think it was Saturday, I, I, I waited at the top of the street, you know, 7.30 in the morning. And sure enough, like clockwork, you know, the cyclist goes streaming by me. And I tail right in behind them and I'm following them and we go through some uh, bike path. I've no, I've never been on this bike path. I'm like, this is, you know, total adventure for me. We ride through a park and all of a sudden we get to um, the Chino Hills State Park trailhead and uh, off they go and I'm riding on this uh, trail and it just seems like it goes forever. And uh, it was right then and there where I was like captured by the adventure and the exploration of cycling. And I just, from that moment on, couldn't get enough of cycling. Awesome. And that so was fast, 12 years old? Yeah, I think it was 12, about 12 years old. Fast forward a couple years, uh, I got my first job at uh, a bike shop called Supergo. And Supergo is also a, a big... Mail order at that time, it was all, you know, print magazine. You'd find their big full page ads yeah. in the magazines of all the cheap parts. They did uh, a lot of magazine advertising and they also had a catalog. Um, and, you know, my parents, my dad ran a fulfillment business um, for catalog industry. And my uncle ran a mailing list business for the catalog industry. And they were kind of partners uh, in business together. So I grew up with this, um, I, I you know, this background, uh, just hearing at the dinner table about catalog and at family gatherings about the catalog business. And so I'd always been intrigued by the catalog business. And now I'm working at Supergo, which is also a cataloger. Uh, but, you know, of course, they had really strong retail stores. And that's, you know, that's where my time was spent. And, you know, I learned how to work on bikes. I was the peon. I mean, I worked in the I worked I my first workbench was bike boxes you know <laughs> stacked two bike boxes you know with a bike box for a counter with uh, a couple park tools and a consumer repair stand in the back shop next to the dumpster <laughs> you know I mean that was my that was my intro into bicycle retail and you know so many people have those types of stories <laughs> but um so i worked at supergo for a couple years uh got into racing um was moving up in 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 the different classes i think back then i was a sport racer you know now they've got it all changed and different but um and i was excelling uh and my goal was to become a pro mountain bike racer i'm like i want to be a pro mountain bike racer uh i need a sponsor to get a sponsor, I need to get some recognition. I need to get to some of the larger race events across the country, and I don't have any money to do that. And working all the time in the bike shop is sucking up all my time to be out riding. This is not working. Um, so um, this was back in the early 90s. I decided to start a mobile bicycle repair business it's because it's what I knew. I knew how to work on bikes. Uh, that's where I started in the shop. And uh, I was probably 25, 30 years ahead of my time because today that's all the talk in the industry is mobile bicycle repair or a lot of the tech talk, you know. So how uh, old so were you at that point? You must have at least been 16 if you were thinking of doing it mobile. Yep. Okay. I, 
I had just gotten my license. I was like, I got a license. This is great. So I was 16. Uh, so I started this mobile bicycle repair business and uh, was training and working on bikes in my garage. Uh, and then customers started wanting, you know, upgrade parts and different things like that. So uh, I would, uh, I, I think I opened account with a very, very small distributor um, that was out of Long Beach, California. And they just had kind of knockoff, no, very, very few name brand parts. Um, it was mostly uh, Taiwan imports and that sort of thing. But nevertheless, I was selling that stuff. Um, and then, uh, I developed a small little inventory in my garage of stuff that I had accumulated, um, you know, through this distributor. I also bought, I don't know if you remember the brand Motive bicycles. They were, and I think they're still around, but they were sold in Costco and Price Club and that sort of thing. Um, and I bought a couple, I think four or five closeouts from them. Um, and so I had four or five of those bikes in the garage and, None of it was really selling. And uh, my dad, really, having come from the service side of things, um, he's like, you know, Mike, inventory is, his words were, the inventory is the devil. You, don't, you Just stick to service. You need to get rid of all this inventory. It's cluttering up my garage. Um, and then just focus in on the service. And, and that's, you know, that way you don't have to have all your money sunk into inventory. And so I took that as the opportunity uh, to start uh, the catalog business. (laughs) Because there's nothing that has uh, more inventory than an online catalog company. That's right. Well, you know, my dad um, is, and, and, you know, even me to a certain extent extent now, but, you know, very conservative, um, uh, didn't, didn't like the risks that he saw me taking and having, you know, pretty much all of my savings, you know, from, uh, my years at Supergo and, um, whatever else money that I had accumulated from, you know, doing garage sales and all the other stuff that I, you know, try to do as a, you know, fledgling entrepreneur in the early years of my life. Um, it, you know, wasn't having inventory and a lot of money in inventory was not necessarily something that, uh, he was comfortable with. Uh, he felt it was like a big risk to buy inventory. He didn't know if it was going to sell. He didn't, you know, what happens if uh, the market fell out? What if it became devalued? And all these things. Um, but uh, for me, you know, I was young. It didn't really bother me all that much. Uh, so, anyways, I uh, called up. This is, I think I was 17 at the time. 17, something like that. Um, Junior, junior year in high school, if I remember correctly, I called up the telephone company because, of course, I would need an 800 number. And uh, I pretended to be my dad. And I said, yeah, this is, this is Don Cachet. I need to get a couple new phone lines installed in the house. I also need an 800 number. <laughs> so, of course, the phone company came and installed that, that's all that stuff, all without my dad knowing. I couldn't tell my dad because he would have said no. You know, I knew he would just say, no way, you know, we're not, you're not going to do that. So I got the phone lines installed in the house. Now, the problem was they didn't come in the house and set up the phones. It was just at the, you know, at the edge of the house. Like, you know, they said, you know, that's not our responsibility. You have to figure out how to get the phones hooked up into the house. So 
first obstacle, had to figure out how to wire telephones. <laughs> so went down to the library, got a book on that, figured it, figured it out, got it set up. Uh, then I needed a credit card machine, got all that, didn't have credit. So that was another obstacle I had to get through. Of course, wasn't legal. That was another obstacle yeah, I, I had to say, get like, through. Yeah, I was going to say, how did you get that when you weren't even 18? Well, uh, the my mentor, uh, who was um, the manager of Supergo, um, co-signed for me um, on 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 the credit card thing. So I was able to get that set up with uh, his help. Got a UPS account. Uh, I'll never forget when the UPS rep showed up at the house and knocked on the door and said, "Hey, are your parents home?" <laughs> I said, "Nope." I mean, well, they are, but, you know, I'm the one that uh, you need to meet with. So come on in. And uh, I, I can only imagine what his story or version would sound like, you know, sitting on my childhood bed in my <laughs> in my childhood bedroom. You know, my mother, her decoration, you know, her the wallpaper, you know, this is I, I could just imagine um, opening me up a UPS account and uh, <laughs> teaching me how to process shipments and everything you know nowadays it's so much simpler you just go online and you're set up in 10 minutes yeah <laughs> but back then it was a little bit more complicated so i don't know a couple months later i was off and running um had everything set up working on my first uh magazine ad you know it's just a super tiny little ad in the back of the of uh what was it mountain biking magazine and uh that's when i had to decide it was the, the day before it was do I had to decide what I was going to name this company and up until that point it was going to be Cachet International and I was on the phone with my mentor and he said you know I don't know Mike your last name's so hard to pronounce and maybe you know do you really want to tie it to your name um, what if you sell the business one day and you know all these things I'd ne- never even thought of I was like oh geez oh those are good thoughts okay well I don't know what you know I got to come up with a name and he's like, all right, well, I can understand. If you want to connect it to you somehow, maybe, you know, what's your middle name? And I told him, well, Vincent. And he thought, oh, okay, that could work. And I'm thinking, Vincent, USA. I don't, I don't, no, it doesn't sound very good. And he's like, yeah, Jensen, USA. That's an odd middle name, but I like it. And I'm like, well, that's not my middle name. I said, Vincent. I had this enunciation problem. So I was often misunderstood. And uh, so through this misunderstanding and an ad deadline that, you know, I came up with, all right, fine, Jensen, you want to say, let's just go. <laughs> and so at this, at this point, like, you must have had some inventory, some things to sell that you were going to list in the ad, right? Yeah, a lot of it was the the crummy, no-name brand parts that I had accumulated, Um so you didn't have like a full on, you weren't like bringing in new parts specifically for this venture yet. This was a way to get rid of the stuff that you had? It was a way to get rid of the stuff that I had. I can remember, I think I had like Avatar Barons. Um, I think I had a Shogun suspension fork. Um, it might have, a Show Air. I can't remember what it was. It was, it was, uh, not very it was not rock shock that's for sure it was nothing shimano <laughs> um and what ended up happening was oh, i scheduled everything so uh when summer break started i would you know be uh available to answer the phone and take orders and so 
I was so excited. You know, summer came. You know, I had everything set up. I had the ad out. I had the phone number. Uh, my brother, who uh, is about, I don't know, uh, how old is he? He's like 15 years, 20 years older than me. Um, yeah, he's about 15 years older than I am. Um, he was already established in his career uh, doing um, software, business software for uh, small businesses. So I'd reached out to him and said, hey, you know, Randy, I'm starting up this uh, catalog business. What software do I need? And so uh, he set me up with, I think it was Peachtree. It was a DOS base. I had a 386 computer. <laughs> <laughs> Peachtree system. So he, and he gave me a crash course in accounting and, you know, how to run the orders and all that fun stuff. Um, you know, all the while, my parents had no idea any of this was going on. <laughs> Which is really the best part. Uh, so. It's, it is kind of the best part. <laughs> so, and of course, I would make sure I got the uh, the phone bill before my, you know, my dad was, uh, <laughs> I can't remember. I think it was, my dad was uh, also doing a startup at the exact same time. Um, so, you know, and he was out uh, uh, at, at the office. So I'd just make sure I got the mail ahead of him getting home and, you know, I was in the clear. Um, and I, of course, wrote a check and sent off the payment to the phone company. Um, and I'm surprised my dad didn't, uh, well, he probably caught on to a certain degree, um, within a month or so, but at some point I had to bring it up to him and, and, and tell him what I had done. <laughs> so I was hoping uh, all along that it was going to be some success and I could share with him some, you know, oh, look, dad, here's what's happened. Um, so, but real quickly, the phone started ringing and customers were like, yeah, okay, uh, do you do you have RockShock? You know, can you get me the Shimano part? You know, they're just asking questions. They're asking for everything that's not in my ad. You know, and <laughs> I'm like, uh, well, yeah, let me figure out how to do that. So I went to work on my next obstacle and um, how am I going to, you know, source that, that, that stuff? Um, and that was, you know, even more of a challenge because, uh, you know, you have to have a storefront, you know, you can't, you, you know, you, you can't be a home-based business, um, and, and, and have these, uh, dealer accounts, um, for high-end product. They want to make sure that you've got some overhead and, you know, that it's a fair playing ground, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, in the event, somehow they gave me an account, <laughs> Um, the, uh, a local distributor, uh, GT Rightway, back in the day before they were, um, you know, all through all the before all the bankruptcies um, and that sort of thing. And it just so happened that uh, Rightway, the distributor, was in the exact same city that I grew up in, just out of a coincidence. Uh, I grew up in Placentia, California, near Yorba Linda, Brea area, uh, and uh, Rightway was in Placentia as well um so i could go and will call orders and get stuff on demand and even if they shipped it it was delivered to my house the very next day um so for about a period of three months or four months or so i was able to get product from right way the customers were requesting you know they would call in i want a rock shock they want shimano parts they want uh uh ringlay uh, uh products or whatever else um was popular at the time uh, ANZEP RNs, uh, 
man, the purple ringway was huge back then. I can remember oh, yeah. that for sure. I had a set of those. The top line cranks. I mean, it's just all, all, all sorts of stuff. Um, spin wheels. So uh, how did you talk them into giving you an account without a, a proper retail storefront? There was this, uh, so their only requirement was the Yellow Pages ad. They didn't send a rep out. There's no Google Earth. You know, there's no Street View. None of that stuff existed back then. So the only requirement was a telephone, a Yellow Pages ad. And so I'm like, well, I can get a Yellow Pages ad. Um, but it's going to take me some time. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't have that. So Yeah, they only um, printed those once or twice a year, right? Exactly. So, you know, I went, well, you know what I could do? Maybe I can create a Yellow Pages ad and uh, share that with them and uh, let them know that, you know, hey, this is, we're just getting up and going. Here's my, here's my Yellow Pages ad. Um, and so you'll never believe this, but uh, there was a software rental company uh, that had opened up uh, about a mile and a half away from my house. Um, it was only in business for about six months because, uh, you know, basically it was illegal, <laughs> but you, you know, you, you, have to buy basically what they did was they bought software and then they were allowing custom people to come in and just rent it. And, you know, when you purchase software, it's only, you know, licensed for single use or, right. you know, or your family or something like you can't open a business and rent software well whoever decided that that was a good idea um opened up it was like a video rental store you walk in and it just had every bit of software you could ever imagine uh so i went down there and uh by this time you know i had uh, a faster computer I think it was a pentium something uh so i got uh adobe uh all the you know adobe graphic design software and i got uh, scanning software. I purchased the scanner, and um, back then a scanner was two thousand dollars. By, by the way, <laughs> yeah. um, and I taught myself how to do graphic design, and I created a Yellow Pages ad. So that's how I that's how I got the account. Now, it didn't last very long because uh, I think uh, a few months a few months into this venture, uh, Rightway found out and. You know, they said, hey, you know, you really don't have a store. You've, you know, that's in violation of our dealer agreement. And so, you know, we can't sell to you. And uh, I was like out of business, basically. <laughs> um, so I went, all right, I need to, I need, now I need to open up a store. And I think I was 17. And that's not going to happen without my dad co-signing on a lease for me. And that's, um, you know, given his, I, even though he was involved in business, um, he was still very conservative, uh, and, uh, didn't want to take necessarily on any, any, you know, it, this is my perception at least, you know, he eventually co-signed on the lease, which obviously meant that he was willing to take on risks to help me, but, um, for me, I was worried about going to him and saying, hey, I want to do this. So I put together this whole business plan. Uh, I had my financials from what happened over the last couple months while I had this thing going on. I had the bank statement with all the money in it. And I went to him one, day, one night and I said, Dad, I got to confess. 
I called Pacific Bell and opened a couple phone lines and got an 800 number and I got a credit card machine and a UPS account and I started a catalog business. <laughs> so, but don't get mad. Here's my income statement. And look what I've done in the last three months. <laughs> and the, my balance sheet. And, you know, and he was uh, not upset and impressed and excited with uh, what I was able to uh, accomplish and uh, impress impressed with my initiative and ability to overcome obstacles and so then I broke the news and I said well I'm out of business unfortunately <laughs> with short lift I need to open up a retail store what was the revenue for those first three months uh, I think the revenue was around 40 to 50 thousand dollars in those uh, first couple months that's amazing so that's... not crazy but you know yeah, but for for that time yep. with no internet and just kind of like selling a few random parts that people were requesting, that's super impressive. It 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 was it was pretty darn exciting. Yeah, he co-signed. Uh, we got a little a uh, little shop set up, and uh, I uh, I called up uh, a, a coworker from Superco who was not working there anymore, and I said, "Hey, um, do you wanna you wanna." Uh, come and uh, answer phones for me while I'm at school because of course school started back up and um, I needed someone to run the show while I was at school so I hired my first employee <laughs> and uh, he'd, he'd come in and get, get things going and answer phone calls and I'd get off school and uh, rush over to the office and, and uh, continue taking orders and placing orders for uh, product with suppliers and then I'd move into charging the credit cards and printing up the pick tickets and then I'd move into shipping and get all that stuff done and answer phone calls and then move back to marketing and <laughs> I was doing everything. And at this point, so it was still only really going for like maybe like six months at this point and you had you know a, a storefront with a, some warehouse space and stuff. What uh, as soon as you got the storefront, did you reestablish the distributor accounts with GT Rightway? Yeah, yeah. As soon as I got the storefront, they they sent the rep out, and we met, and I was back on again. So was there um, much of a lapse between the the time when you know they they canceled your account and the time you were able to get started again? Uh, there was probably a couple months, so it wasn't too bad. I still had the uh, account with. Um, that small distributor in Long Beach and uh, I was now that I was confirmed with opening up a, a store I was also calling and setting up accounts with uh, other vendors um, you know another reason I chose this catalog business um, was was because that you know it wasn't really a face-to-face -face business and could cloak my age and uh, just do everything over the phone so I was able to open up a good number of accounts um, with various suppliers around the country, um, some of which we still do business, you know, actually a lot of them we still do business with uh, today. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of an interesting story and it's fun. But yeah, so we, we set up the, uh, the store, I got a little storefront going and um, that was my senior year uh, in high school. And, uh, I can remember I, it was, I was still, it was so exciting, but I was still wanting to do this for my race career. And I was still 
training a bunch and riding a bunch and I, I can remember I was on a on a training ride and I was thinking about you know getting to the next race and having to leave the business and um I I was like you know what I think there's probably more of a career opportunity for me to focus on the business uh than focusing on my race racing career uh long term and you know which is so a pretty that was, mature decision that was the for moment. you know an 18 year old I would think yeah, I would say I was probably more mature than the average 18-year-old. A lot of my friends were out partying, and you know, I was just all immersed in, in, in running this. I mean, I, I literally worked every minute of every day. Um, there was no I – mean, I just worked, slept, got up, and repeated for a good two years straight. I was mean, that, there was, do you think that was out of necessity to grow the business the way you wanted to grow, or was it just – you were just so stoked on what you were doing. It was more out of necessity, but you know the the stoke factor um, gave me the drive to keep going um, because it wasn't you know it was it was fun. Um, I was learning new things every day, and uh, it, it you know it it was exciting. So, uh, uh, but when you're starting a new business, um, it it takes an enormous amount of effort. Um, and time and you know it depending on your resources uh, financially and or through staff um, you know usually you're limited on both of those things Um, right and so there was that was no different with you know Jensen USA as a startup you know we were limited on capital I mean I think I started this business with five thousand dollars which was you know basically my life savings and, Which is um, also impressive you know, that, the, that you know, fourteen, sixteen years old, you've got five thousand dollars. <laughs> it's rare I have that much sitting in my savings account still. Yeah, I, you know, I, a lot of kids don't 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 think that way. My dad, um, you know, my grandmother went through the Great Depression, and uh, uh, she had five children uh, with my grandfather, and he got ill. And uh, unfortunately, uh, she raised those five children without the support of my grandfather and as a single parent on a secretary salary. And so my dad and my aunts and uncles grew up really valuing the dollar and, you know, figuring out how to rub two pennies together to make five. Um, And that frugality and that you know, that uh, experience that my father went through and the experience my grandmother went through um, in the Great Depression ended up in, in my childhood and house. <laughs> and uh, that was a really uh, good lesson growing up on how to manage money. Uh, my dad was always teaching us about how to to be smart and wise and, um, you know, to, you know, I mean, I can remember learning how to negotiate things when I was six and seven years old. You know, I'd tell my dad I wanted something from my bike and, you know, it was like, well, you know, pick up the phone and make it happen. You know, don't, I'm not going to do it for you. Right. Um, you can't afford it. Talk to him. See if you could bring the price down 10% or something like that. <laughs> you know, these are concepts that, you know, most children don't really get to experience but my dad was teaching me that stuff 
That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's one of the things where it's if you can't throw money at something to solve it, you know, in, in business or to create a product, you kind of have to throw creativity and time and energy at it, which, you know, I've done a lot of that too. And I look at, there's a lot of, you know, other media out there and a lot of other companies, they've got all this shway, they've got, you know, branded t-shirts and hats and and all kinds of stuff, right? And I'm like, we don't really have any of that for Bike Rumor. And it's because I feel like that's just, well, those things don't drive business growth and they don't drive the bottom, to improve the bottom line. So like, why why would I spend money on that stuff? And sometimes it's much to the chagrin of my riders because they don't have new t-shirts to wear to the trade shows every year. But um, yeah, it's like sometimes you just got to rein that stuff in and figure out different ways to grow your business and like you said you were pouring your time and energy into it non-stop so I want to talk about some of the nitty-gritty the details about like how you grew it and how you've um, continued to grow it because you guys have been in business non-stop since that uh, since you launched which is awesome the two questions so first the inventory like once you got that storefront you got these accounts it sounds like the first distributor account you had, the real one, the GT right way, was, was done because it was so close that if somebody called to order something from you, you could get it real quick from them and then turn it around and pick it up you know, the same day and go ship it to fulfill the orders. So at what point did you start actually bringing in inventory and sitting on it in your own warehouse in anticipation of an order instead of just you know, drop shipping essentially? Uh, not too far off after opening the retail store. Um, I think I, I opened the retail store in early 96 and, uh, we started bringing inventory in at that point. Um, what was I was the, stocking stuff. What, what was the strategy? Because it seems like that's, that's a much riskier move than being able to just pick up what somebody's ordering. We did a combo. Um, you know, for example, if we were getting a lot of calls for a particular item, we would, you know, start stocking it um, because it was just a better customer experience. Um, but uh, you know, we still couldn't stock everything, and we wanted to serve everybody. So, if customers would call um, and the inventory, I knew I could get it from Rightway. We would take the order and place place an order with Rightway and get it in, you know, very quickly uh, the next day and then ship to the customer. Today, that model really doesn't work. Um, and uh, that model actually uh, hurt hurt the business um, because as uh, it grew, we kind of hit um, uh, some uh, turbulence in that um, we were growing faster than we can uh, manage. Um, so orders were coming in, you know, through the call center or, you know, me and a few other people essentially. Um, and we couldn't keep up. So what was happening was, uh, we'd take an order for an item and then the purchase order wouldn't get placed until the next day or the following day. And then we'd finally get it in three or four days later. And, you know, sometimes five days later because a weekend came and went and then it finally gets shipped to a customer and it takes four or five days to get to the customer. And, you know, they're going, what, you know, what's going on? Why is it taking so long? Uh, and uh, calling in, checking on their order. Um, and, and then we would run into instances where we'd take orders for stuff that we couldn't source from a distributor. You know, it was just out of stock at the distributor. Um, 
we wouldn't know that it was out of stock because, of course, nothing's connected. There's no online, really. I mean, online was getting going at that point. Um, and so we started hitting some turbulence. Um, this was like 97, 98. Uh, we... You know, just being a small business, the way it worked back then was when we took an order, you know, we charged a credit card and made sure it worked and we got the money and we'd then place the order for the product and all this was, you know, hoping that it would happen in a really short amount of time. So whenever we had inventory to sell and it was stocked, that was, you know, that always worked great because, you know, we could just sell what we had and it'd ship out right away. Um, if but, you know, again, on the shipping side, we were running in delays, you know, they were just getting, you know, we we're growing too fast and getting too many orders. Uh, we didn't have good processes in place to manage all this stuff. So, you know, it's easy when it's just, you know, a handful of orders and it's, you know, you can manage it. You can go, all right, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to do that. Then I'm going to process the orders and, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, but as you start growing, you got to figure out how to scale the business. You got to create good processes and procedures that work that are bulletproof that you know don't upset customers that you know make things work properly that you know communicate everything to customers and uh so we were learning a lot of these things the hard way um i can remember um i'm trying to remember what the you know the dates were uh, one of another online uh you know this is when online uh forums were starting to pop up and customers were starting to comment in, in online forums about how horrible the service was at Jensen USA and, uh, you know, be nervous about placing an order with Jensen USA because, you know, it, you know, they may say it's available, but it's really not. And you don't know if you're, you know, if your order is going to ship out on time and it may take two weeks to get, or it may get to you really quick. You know, it's really shoddy. Um, so those are some of the things that we were dealing with uh, in the early years. Was some of yeah. that, um, and I'm going off a memory here from when we spoke a few years ago, I was there. The I, I remember, I think there was part of it where this wasn't necessarily a growth strategy as much as a necessity, but... Um, you know, when you guys would get the payment in from the customer and then not be able to ship right away, it sounded like it was almost at times the one customer's order was financing an older customer's order. And it was kind of this bad cycle of, you know, if we didn't get some more orders in, we might not be able to fulfill older customers' orders. And how did you dig out of that? Because that's a, that's a dangerous hole. Well, that hole kept getting bigger. Uh, I, you know, we, I think, uh, in, in 96, I did a million dollars uh, in revenue, um, which was really exciting. Uh, 97, I think we did, you know, 2.2 million, something like that. So we were having enormous growth. And cash flow really wasn't kind of a problem. Um, but you're right. Customers were, you know, new, new orders were kind of funding old customer um, uh, uh, inventory buys. And um, we also didn't have very good accounting controls. Um, I don't think I ever reconciled the bank account. Uh, Just, you know, stuff was coming in, going out. You know, it was just the accounting side of the business was really uh, the last thing to be looked after, you know, which is common with a lot of entrepreneurs. You know, they're very sales focused or, 
uh, marketing focused, right? Um, oh, yeah, I'm guilty of that. <laughs> the year end rush to reconcile like eight months worth of bank statements. Uh huh. Well, when you're growing that fast, uh, it's uh, not a good thing. Um, so, but our income statement showed we were making money. Um, and uh, so, what ended up happening sometime in 97, um, just as things were turning, um, the customer experience was dwindling because of our lack of systems and processes in place. And um, we uh, hit this kind of little lull where, you know, sales growth uh, dipped down a little bit. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, we couldn't make uh, our vendor payments. And, you know, there was no money in the bank account. And uh, I remember going, what, you know, what is going on? How, you know, the income statement shows we're making money. Um, and I ended up hiring um, a CPA to come in uh, to take a look at the books and try to figure this stuff out. And he comes back to me and he's like, well, Mike, you know, maybe it was 98. Cause it had seemed like it was, I think it was a couple years. I think it was 98, middle of 98. So we had been in business for a couple of years, but he comes back and he's like, you know, hate to break it to you, but you know, not only have you not been making money, uh, <laughs> you're a quarter of a million dollars upside down in the business and you owe your vendors, uh, $800,000 and, um, you're pretty much bankrupt. So, you know, my advice is to declare bankruptcy <laughs> or come with some turnaround plan. At the time, I was, you know, uh, very many months behind on payments and vendors were bringing uh, suit against the company. Um, the the shit was hitting the fan, if you know what I mean. Yeah, sounds like um, it. It, it was that was a very tough time. Uh, my dad, I went to him for advice and, you know, he's like, well, I'd recommend, uh, you know, for you to just close the books and, you know, be done, um, declare bankruptcy, uh, and, uh, maybe in several years after your credit gets cleaned up, you can, you can go back at this thing, uh, again. And I remember thinking, man, I can't leave the bike industry with $800,000 in debt. I, I mean, this is my passion. Like, that's just wrong. I, I can't do it. I, like, I'm not. I'm not going to um, close up. I'm not going to go bankrupt. I'm going to figure this out. And uh, so I took a really hard look at, you know, how we were operating. And I just decided to do the opposite of that. Um, so one of the things that I noticed was going on was we would, you know, when customers would call, uh, we would tell them, you know, yeah, that's that's available. You know, if they asked if we had something in stock, yeah, that's available, and um, that was lying to them. You know, we didn't we didn't have it in stock. It was available at our supplier, but you know, that was lying to them. So um, I said, well, we're going to be, you know, we're just going to be honest and open with all our customers. We're going to be honest and open with our vendors. I'm, you know, when we were having the same conversations when vendors would call for payment. Hey, you know, well, you know, the check went, you know, we're getting the check out this week, you know, and okay, we'd maybe get a check out, but it wouldn't be for the whole amount. Um, and, you know, that wasn't really a good way to do business. And of course, being honest was hard because I didn't want to tell them we didn't have the money because I was worried that they would cut us off, which some of them were, um, which, 
you know, now that I think about that's actually what led to the the slowdown in sales is we just couldn't get product because we weren't able to pay, make our bills, pay our bills. Um, and so I went to all my vendors and I just had a heart to heart with every single one of them. And I said, look, I'm, I've really kind of gotten into a little bit of a mess here and I am going to make it up to you. Um, I know I owe you a lot of money and, uh, I know you don't want to do business with me, but if you're going to get paid back, we're going to have to come up with something where we can continue to buy product. Cause if I can't sell product to, to customers, I'm definitely going out of business. Um, and, and so, you know, we worked out different deals and different arrangements with every single vendor that I, you know, owed money to. Um, at the same time we were, uh, we were, uh, developing a new website. Um, and uh, I said, you know what? I want stock status to be incorporated into the new website. So if customers uh, log in, they'll see if it's in stock or out of stock. Uh, and I just want everything to be, you know, um, full disclosure. I just want to put it out there and be honest with everyone. And uh, that really had an impact. Um, and we started to slowly win back customers with that uh, approach. And, um, we were also setting the pace in the industry because no one else had online stock status on their website and no one else had real time order status, uh, from the back end on their website and order confirmations and shipping confirmations and, you know, being honest about the status of the order, if it's in stock or out of stock, all this stuff, you know, just didn't exist back then. You know, you, now you you know you could buy a system and you know probably get up and running in a couple of days, um, but you know that stuff didn't exist. We were creating it, um, and uh, it was like a fresh of breath air for consumers because they're frustrated. They like buying online, but they were uneasy about it because they just never knew. It was like a it was a gamble. You never knew if it was going to be good with Jensen or some of the other online retailers at that time you know you just never knew um what the experience was going to be like right so how long did uh, it take you to get back in the black after those come to jesus phone calls with your suppliers it took uh i would say about a year a little about a year and a half which was actually i thought which is pretty fast we, yeah. you know, i think we broke even um about a year and a half later we we I was not upside down in the business anymore. <laughs> um, we're we're back to uh, uh, good status with our vendors and caught up. And um, it wasn't long after that that I said, you know what? We're just going to make sure we pay our bills on time. Like that that could be a good competitive advantage for us. Um, <laughs> yeah. What was so the started, what was the key number or, or numbers or like what were you not looking at when you thought you guys were making a profit and it turns out you weren't like what were you ignoring? Uh, our inventory. <laughs> how so? Like, um, like what should people in a similar situation look out for or like how do they make sure that they're operating in the black? Uh, the you know one of the. One of the main things that that went amiss was our inventory. Uh, we had very poor controls in place uh, to make sure that the inventory that showed up on the balance sheet, um, that balance, 
matched what was actually in the warehouse and in the retail store. Um, and uh, it got off. And how, the how does bank it get account- off? Well, uh, it got off because uh, when we placed a purchase order with the vendor, we would uh, request you know various pricing and that sort of thing. And the vendor would ship us the inventory and charge us a different amount, usually more. Um, but we'd receive the inventory at the lower price. Uh, so because we just didn't have time or we weren't paying attention, that the prices were different. Um, there was no like connection there between that process of receiving and matching up and making sure that the invoice was accurate. Um, there was no no connection there. Then we also have two different systems. We had the the mail order system that ran uh, the mail order business, and then we had our accounting software, which was completely separate. So all the accounts payable went through the accounting software, and all the inventory went through the mail order system. And so the you know there was like a daily journal that like uh, occurred, but it never balanced out, never really reconciled, and so just the detail behind the items on the balance sheet were inaccurate. Like if you ran a bank statement and looked at the cash on hand and in, in on the balance sheet, it, it never matched because we never did. At, you know, we were at that point, but we never did. Uh, bank reconciliations we didn't do any inventory reconciliations on the balance sheet or accounts payable reconciliations you know what was showing that we owed on the balance sheet was different from what our vendor said we owed them so you know, i was you, thinking like you'd order a part that you had agreed to pay ten dollars for and it'd come in and then the distributor would invoice you twelve dollars for it and there was there was nobody calling to correct them because you had in one system an accounts payable of ten dollars per piece and an invoice sitting there for 12 and is that kind of what was happening that's one thing yeah one yeah that's kind of what was happening uh so there was just a lot of bad controls in place to make sure that things were properly accounted for um you know i would imagine that uh uh you know if a customer needed something um we were taking inventory um we were probably making a bunch of mistakes shipping stuff incorrectly you know all that stuff was adding up to kind of create this uh out of balance if you will yeah now i've heard of like in in other industries that's the first i've heard of this in bike so i'm kind of curious like that that pricing discrepancy from what you guys thought you should be paying and what you were being charged for is that just a error on the distributor's part or or was it like kind of a shady tactic to try and get more money from you guys? Like, why do you think uh, those numbers were different? Well, I think it was, I don't know that necessarily it was a shady tactic, maybe perhaps um, to a certain degree. Uh, you know, we would, uh, a lot of times, you know, like perfect example, Shimano, um, you know, a lot of currency fluctuations and the prices were just constantly moving and, um, you know, the price would go up. We would not get that information. Um, or if we did, we didn't have time to update our system and, uh, we'd go ahead and place another purchase order. Um, the vendor may have sent a, a, you know, a confirmation via fax, but it would be just 
you know, sitting on a fax machine somewhere. It was just uh, not the information wasn't getting back to us um, that the price was increased. And so we'd make a purchase order for the item at the lower price and the system never got it just never got updated. So it was a little bit of, of you know, of uh, I, I would more put the blame on us than our vendors. Um, you know, certainly some of it was, you know, we would we would place a purchase order and 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 try to, you know, and, and it would say, hey, you know, if you can't do these prices, let us know. But you know, we'll we'll buy this quantity at this price if you could do the price. Um, and they either missed that message or they didn't care or they knew we weren't looking and they would just go ahead and ship it and, you know, charge us the higher amount. And, um, you know, it was just super loose. Um, there was no, and we probably didn't have much leg to stand on if we went back to them and said, Hey, wait a second. Our purchase order said this, you know, that's what we agreed to. Um, it you know, sounds like just the just lack of oversight. Happening. So like, what kind of systems did you guys put in place to fix that? Did you integrate your software between the shipping, receiving and the accounting? You know, over the years, we've done an enormous amount of stuff uh, technology-wise to integrate um, our software to our vendor software uh, uh, you know, using EDI and different various other um, things out there. Um, back then, um, we simply just took a look at the purchase orders and made sure that, you know, we had the pricing correct. Um, we developed the position to... That's, you know that was their sole responsibility was looking after purchase order price I mean it's our largest asset inventory uh, and purchasing inventory is our largest is our largest uh, buy um, in terms of annualized dollars so it was really clear like if there's any particular area to put resources that would be one of them and so we we, we put some resources in place to make sure that things were um, never going to get off again, and uh, that was, you know, way way back when in the in the early two thousands. Yeah. Um, so so I want to talk but, a little bit about um, yeah. like product strategy. So you know, I'm going to talk about two of your competitors as an example because uh, I, I don't think I, well, Supers not goes not around anymore, but. Um, so if I look at like Nash Bar and performance, and I would equate SuperGo more towards the Nash Bar side, where these companies would go in and they would buy out like uh, new old stock. Like let's say RockShox had a bunch of prior year forks left over, and weren't able to move them into the OEM market, they would blow them out to somebody like SuperGo or Nash Bar, uh, and then those guys would turn around and blow them out to consumers at like just ridiculous prices. And that was a big part of the appeal of these mail order catalogs and now websites. Um, but then you've got ones like uh, performance and above category that kind of maintain MSRP and sort of go after more of a premium. They just, it's the, the benefit to them is that the product is available for basically get it shipped out that same day and get it soon and a, a wider selection than what you can get from a local bike shop. So where does Jensen USA fall into that spectrum? Like, how do you guys pick and choose which products you're going to carry? Do you guys buy old inventory as blowouts, or are you focused more on the premium category? Our strategy is to focus. You know, we want to have premium brands, you know, a curated selection of premium brands with special buys. Um, most of our product offering is, is non-closeout. You know, of course, we do have closeouts. Um, you know, there's, 
there's just when you're in the, when you're manufacturer it and I you know what I I feel so bad for manufacturing businesses you know so tough you know the lead times are huge trying to gain a pulse on whether something's going to be popular or not um, all the different factors that go into um, determining how much to produce and then you end up with overstock and you're like what you know what do we do with it and, and it's such a delicate um, it's such a delicate uh, uh, situation because you don't want as a manufacturer and brand you don't want to devalue your brand um, by liquidating um, and so we work really closely with our brands um, when closeouts come up to, to work together to um, come up with a strategy that uh, works for all parties. Um, but a lot of our product is, you know, it's just sold at MSRP uh, and, and or, you know, whatever the, you know, the minimally advertised price is. Um, and uh, we really focus on uh, just having a curated selection of premium product. And, um, you know, we don't want, you know, that, that's that's a that's a really important part to our strategy is just having a great selection of premium brands uh, and uh, special buys um, here and there uh, for the consumer. Um, and I think it's you know it differentiates us in the marketplace to a certain degree from some of the competitors you mentioned. Yeah. So, well, that kind of leads into my next question a little bit. Is like, so how other than that, how do you differentiate from somebody like Performance who's I, I mean, if I just had to guess from the outside looking in, I'm guessing they're one of the biggest. I don't know. How do you guys compare to them in terms of size and volume, and like, how do you differentiate yourself? We're we go after a very different customer, in my opinion. Um, performance, uh, in my opinion, really, you know, they have they have premium brands, but nowhere near to the extent that we have premium brands. Um, they're very much focused on uh, their private label product. Um, and uh, to me, at least, it seems that way from the outside. Um, I would agree. They've got a and, huge and number so of house brands. They've got a huge number of house brands. I think that's really important to any business. Uh, you control your own destiny. You, you know, there's a lot of positives to having some of your own uh, uh, your, your own brands. Um but you know, in my opinion, I think you've got to be careful because you don't want to, you know, you don't want to, um, you know, not you don't want to lose that appeal. Um, you know, there's a reason why uh, the brands in the bike industry are popular. Uh, you know, they're creating, they're doing a lot of neat things. They're innovating, uh, really pushing the envelope to um, advance cycling, and I want to be a part of that. And Jensen and my staff, we all want to be a part of that. So, if you know, if we're leaning too heavy on our own private label products, and you know, we kind of we get out of touch and the and what's going on in the industry, and we, you know, like we just want to see all the cool new stuff. You know, I mean, <laughs> it really probably was what's driving a good chunk of our strategy is you know we want to be in the mix, we want to be uh, a part of what's happening. So, and uh, you, so I, I think lines, that's probably the biggest differentiator. Yeah. So do you guys ever What's try that? and get like exclusives? Like, uh, you know, let's say I'm just going to keep using RockShox as an example. Like, let's say RockShox has a new 
fork technology or something like would you guys to try and get that here's what's new and shiny and exciting try and get some kind of like exclusive edition or or, or like an early sale opportunity with them or any brand yeah absolutely i think that you know we do try to uh partner where it makes sense for all parties um you know we we you know we have uh this uh, value called be a sustainable business and um you know it means three things one we want uh, our decisions to be economically sound two we want to be socially responsible and we want our decisions to be environmentally responsible as well um so when we enter into conversations with our vendors and partners um you know we we take a look at the entire industry really and you know if an exclusive opportunity makes sense and um, isn't going to hurt others, uh, then, you know, perhaps that maybe we will do something like that for a short amount of time, um, in the very beginning of a product launch or something like that. Um, you know, that's exciting, uh, where it makes sense, you know, for example, maybe, uh, distribution isn't possible across the country to all the brick and mortar retailers. Um, and for, you know, a month long period of time, you know, the, uh, only place that it's offered is at Jensen USA. But we don't want to uh, make decisions that, that hurt the bike industry. We want to make decisions that grow the pie, if you will. Um, and so and we don't do a lot of exclusives. Um, you know, of course, we do have some items that are um, exclusive to Jensen in a way. Like, for example, uh, you know, we may have a, a special um, – product manufactured for us and the you know it's only made for jensen usa you know uh, a different you know a different model and we've kind of specced it out with you know what we want um but it's typically not you know the hot popular things right how do you guys work with bike shops you know brick and mortar independent retail shops because obviously you compete with them um you know like how does that work out and and how do you guys combine that with your uh, like physical retail spot? Because you guys have kind of like a little showroom shop at your headquarters. Right, exactly. You know, we've got another store as well, and we're thinking about expanding retail, brick and mortar. Um, so I, I, you know, I think the uh, specialty bicycle dealer um, has a, a a great place. Um, in bicycle retail, uh, I don't know that customers come to us because uh, because you know we beat them out on, on price. Uh, Sometimes you know a lot of times um, you know bicycle dealers uh, offer a lower price than we do on certain items. So, uh, you could you know likely get in and get a, get a better deal at a at a bike shop. Um, Sometimes, maybe not on closeouts, you know, for example, where we've, you know, purchased uh, at a discount off of uh, wholesale, but, um, you know, inline product, um, you know, some some shops are, are uh, discounting or um, offering consumers uh, negotiation room, that sort of thing, where we, you know, we really hold strong to map for the most part. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the brick and mortar is so important. Uh, they create community. You know, this is this is the same sort of things that we're, we're trying to do in a virtual world. You know, I think 
it's already been going on for a long time. Uh, they create community and uh, an atmosphere for consumers to come in and experience uh, all that cycling has to offer. Um, they uh, support and service the product. You know, this is uh, an advantage they have over Jensen USA uh, in terms of our online business. You know, it's really difficult for us to uh, do that uh, tune-up after you know a customer has um, made their bicycle purchase. Um, you know, we do get calls. You know, hey, my shifting's not working, and you know that's a difficult call to take um, because you know we're not there to just say, well, let's throw it up in the stand and take a look and see, you know, see what's happening. We've, you know, we've we're experimenting with different um, technologies to to try to provide uh, service and support, um, but you know, it's difficult uh, more so than if you were in the brick and mortar retail. Um, so some ideas I have on working closer with retailers to establish some sort of uh, preferred dealer network um, where we can partner, you know, maybe we offer uh, service plans when we sell bikes and they're serviced at the local bike shop that the customer uh, is nearby or um, maybe we can uh, sell service uh, to our customers across the country uh, at their local bike stores. Perhaps uh, we could put kiosks in stores and have customers, you know, let's say we have partner stores, if you will, or, uh, uh, you know, friends of the family types of stores where customers can come in and pick up their orders and or place um, orders through the Jensen USA kiosk for stuff that the bike shop doesn't carry, you know, um, that sort of thing exists um, and happens. We've tested that sort of thing um, and uh, it's something that's of interest. We haven't put a ton of energy behind it at this point, but um, I think there's a lot of opportunity uh, on the brick and mortar side and it's, it's, it's an area of focus for us. Right. No, that's really cool. It seems like a good, uh, a good way to work with them instead of just compete against them. Cause I know it's in my opinion that, you know, the shops really are going to have to continue to put more and more focus on service when, you know, you can buy anything online uh, pretty much and get it shipped to your door. <clears throat> the I want to talk marketing a little bit as far as reaching your customers. I know you guys do a huge amount with affiliate programs because I deal with uh, your guy Ivan there to set up our affiliate program that we run on Bike Rumor for Jensen. Uh, be, beyond that, yeah, what do you guys do to reach new customers to keep your current customers? Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, you know, we obviously spend a ton of money with Google and Bing and all the other. Yahoo, uh, I guess those are the mainly three big ones, but uh, we're doing a lot of uh, advertising uh, with those uh, um, companies. Um, Is that just keyword search? Work to create great keyword search. Uh, you know, we also uh, upload our products to uh, have them listed uh, in their product listing ads. Um, and you know that drives a good chunk of traffic. Certainly not the majority, but it's you know it's a good chunk of traffic. It's super expensive, um, but uh, you know there there is an ROI there. And you know we're constantly testing. Uh, you know back in the years where I was running the catalog, and um, just from my uh, being immersed in the catalog industry, and it was always test, test, test. Right? You know, test different covers, test you know different. Um, calls to action, you know, in the catalog. And, you know, it's the same online, you know, you just 
you always want to be testing. Yeah. So, so I'm curious. We're really constantly skin. testing different things. So real quick on the Google stuff, I'm, I'm Go interested because I don't know the the Google product listings. Is that like if I searched for uh, you know product X and then I see like shopping options across the top? Is that what you're talking about? That's exactly right. Yep. Okay. Those are sponsored. Some are, or some are not sponsored. But uh, you know, any any retailer can upload their um, product listing, and Google will will list it. Um, but you know, to get placement on the homepage of you know the products, you have to pay. And so those are those are sponsored sponsored listings uh, that we pay for every time someone clicks uh, um, on that link. We pay, <laughs> and it adds it up. So, but, uh, you know, we've got the affiliate program. Um, we, uh, do a bunch of different SEO type of stuff to, to, you know, really it just comes down to having unique copy, um, and, and great, great copy on our website, uh, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, 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 you know, our strategy to retain customers, uh, is number one to show them the love. Like, you know, that's our number one core value. Customers, everything, show them the love. Uh, get them to come back again is by having having it be a great experience. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, we've got email marketing and various other technologies that we deploy um, and we're tracking customer retention, retention and monitoring it every week. Um, you know, is it up? Is it down? Where's it going? Uh, and uh, I think it's also a good sign of, you know, how we're doing uh, with our customers. And we're constantly surveying our customers. Um, we do a lot of, uh, uh, of campaigns to get customers to buy again. Um, we have very, very strong. I mean, when you look at other online businesses um, and you compare their customer retention rates with our customer retention rates, we're often double what, what is uh, uh, standard in, in online retention, which is great because spending all that money with Google and all the other things that we do marketing-wise uh, you know, goes farther because those customers are more valuable to us. You know, but that wouldn't be possible without you know, a great team in place. You know, we haven't really gone into some of the building blocks of what makes a good business. I mean, some of it, but I mean, it all comes down to people. Like, I cannot thank my employees enough. They do such a great job. Um, they are so passionate and they care about this business as if it was their own. And that's a really hard thing to get um, when you're uh, the business owner uh, from your employees. Uh, they they uh, are my biggest asset, you know, beyond, you know, I was saying earlier, you know, inventory is our largest asset financially but people are our largest asset to the business and if you don't got good people and you, if you don't treat them well and um you know set things up so that they are set up for success um you know you can pretty much count on your business not making it beyond the million dollar the two million dollar mark you know getting beyond the the 96 percent of businesses that are under a million dollars and you know you've heard all these statistics but you know uh, you know only one makes it out of 10 or something like that it's you know it really comes down to people yeah what do you do in particular to kind of foster that ownership mentality and you know what do you do to attract and retain good talent 
Well, I like to let employees be entrepreneurs within the business. I think that gives them a sense of ownership, um, a sense that they can affect change, that they have a voice, um, and that they're they're a meaningful part of the business. Um, can you give me an example? So, like- you know, sure. You know, um, we've got uh, you know some. Let's say, let for example. Um, one of uh, my uh, directors um, implemented a change uh, in the warehouse, and uh, um, he said, "You know, hey, let me know what you guys think." And we had an employee come forward and you know say, "Hey, you know, if we did it this way, it'd be better." And it's not working this way, and you know, so we went ahead and implemented the change, and um, we were better for it. Um, so, you know, or for example, I had another employee that came in and said, hey, you know what, I think I think we'd get better success on the website um, if we change the color of the add to cart button. You know, if you look at Amazon and a lot of other sites, you know, the color is different than our color. Um, you know, let's test that and see what happens. And I'm like, go for it, do it, you know, report back and let me know. And uh, so they went out and they, you know, they tested it and came back and said, well, you know what? It, it actually didn't make a difference, but, you know, um, let's try this now. And we went off and we tried another test on the website. Um, you know, I, I am definitely not the smartest person in the room here. Um, I try to hire people that are smarter than me. Um, you know, check your ego at the door because, uh, you know, you aren't going to do well if you've got a big ego at Jensen USA. Um, it's about collaboration and hearing ideas and considering thoughts and what people have to say and um, giving people an opportunity to try that. And failure is certainly okay um, because that's the only way to improve. You know, you've got to try things out. Um, and, 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 and part of that is failure. And so I don't, you know, if something happens and it's a, you know, it's a failure, it's like, okay, well, then what did we learn? Um, I think we, we had uh, a couple years ago, we had a priority project for a quarter on improving customer retention, and it ended in red. You know, it was kind of a quote-unquote failure. But, you know, my um, I love to talk about this particular uh, story because today, the efforts of that priority project that ended in red, that was quote-unquote a failure, has resulted in millions upon millions upon millions of additional revenue and improved customer retention due to the efforts of that project. And that was um, uh, a, uh, it was essentially a Frontline's employee that was running that project, a major priority for the company, um, which you know gives that person opportunity to grow. And it wasn't necessarily a failure because of their part um, you know, we set up the project, you know, we made some bets, we tried some different things and you know what, we, we, we kind of made wrong bets, but we modified along the way and we learned an enormous amount and we were a much better company because of it. And, um, so, you know, those are some of the things that, um, I talk about when, when I, when I, when I say trying to let employees be entrepreneurs within the business, let them run the business. And I learned a long time ago, get out of the way. I'm my own biggest obstacle. I got to get out of the way and let people run the business. When I try to micromanage everything, that's when things kind of come to a grinding halt. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you've also got, you know, you've got to um, 
measure results and and look after stuff you know so right. uh, so anyways cool so what are maybe uh one or two pieces of advice that you'd give to an entrepreneur that wants to do something similar to jensen usa well uh number one i think that um just know that uh, you're going to end up, you know, especially if it if it's a new startup, you're going to be putting a lot of time and energy into it. Um, but figure out what your purpose is, you know, beyond making money. Like, if you don't have a purpose as to why you're doing this, then it just is going to be difficult to get people to buy in, to get you know staff to to come on board for your, you know. And I say cause, you know, we're not a nonprofit or anything like that. But I mean, really, it's about Jensen is, you know, it's about getting people inspired to ride and experience and explore. Um, and, uh, you know, if you if you can't figure out what your purpose is, then I think you're going to have some tr- struggles, you know, and your core values as well. I think it's important to figure out what you're going to what you're going to live, live by. Um you know, in the early years, they may not exactly be completely known. You know, Jensen's core values really kind of came about through some of the struggles that we faced. Um, I'd also recommend a book um, called Scaling Up. It's uh, by Vern Harnish. Uh, it's uh, not a very big book. It's basically uh, just step-by-step, pretty easy to read um, book on how to build and scale a business and, uh, the stuff in that book and the many, many book recommendations that Vern has, uh, I would, you know, again, I think before I even this, I came across this book, uh, many years after I read many of the books that, that the author recommends reading. Um, and I was like, man, this one book has got it all like (laughs) everything. All the books that I've read and implemented here at Jensen, the different things that we've done, it's all in this book. It's like in this easy step-by-step guide. Nice. Um, yeah, I'll put a link so to that we, in the show we, notes. Vern will probably be excited. I've never met him, but uh, we use <laughs> uh, that book in, in our in our business. Um, but really, it just talks about four key fundamentals, people, strategy, execution, and cash. You know, If you can get those four things right, then you're going to have a successful business that makes it uh, and makes it uh, for many, many years to come. Awesome. All right. My last question is, how do you build adventure into your everyday life nowadays? Well, I try to get out and ride as much as possible. Luckily, um, as you saw when you were here, we've got the trail system right behind the building. Yeah, it's literally Uh, out your back door. (laughs) Yep. I hop on the bike at lunch or, you know, uh, when it's hot before or after. Um, and, uh, so the bike is, is my passion. I, I, I when I get on the bike, everything kind of just escapes and, you know, falls to the side and, uh, it's quiet and peaceful. And you, I just love the sound of the tires, uh, meeting the dirt and, um, and, uh, the sounds of nature and the wind in your hair and face. And it's just, it's, it, it's that's that's my sense of adventure but adventure is all around you um 
in everything that you do. Um, it doesn't have to be on the bike. I love the business adventure that I'm on. Uh, I love uh, the family adventures that we take and the different places that we go and you know my children and watching the different things that they get into and get passionate about and you know all of it. Um, it's 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 a fun process. Uh, it's taken me some time to uh, appreciate um, the journey, um, but it's so important to be here now. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's great hearing the story for me again, but hopefully everybody else enjoyed it as much as I did. Thanks, Tyler. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. first part of this episode is really here for inspiration. The methods and tools have changed, but the entrepreneurial spirit needed to launch a company has not. It takes guts, it takes creativity, and above all, it takes a strong belief in what you're doing. Mike alluded to this near the end by saying you've got to find your purpose. This not only drives you through the long hours and tough times, but it's what will inspire your team, family, and friends to help you create something amazing. Mike's early inventory management and accounting practices illustrate what not to do pretty well. Besides keeping them separate and not having those teams talking to each other regularly, he simply didn't have the systems in place to scale his business. That's why it's so important to think through your business's long term and try to foresee where bottlenecks and issues can arise as you grow. Then create systems and processes now that'll keep you growing smoothly and profitably in the future. This can be tough because you don't know what you don't know. But asking a lot of what if questions can help you imagine what your business will be like when you're moving 10 times, 100 times, or even 1,000 times more product. I've got a lot more analysis in my show notes. Just search Jensen on thebuildcycle.com and you'll find this episode's blog post with links, photos, and more. Before you go, I've got one small ask. Could you please hit that review and rating link on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to The Build Cycle and give me a quick review and rate it? Here's hoping you found your purpose. Until next time, keep building!